he was ordering food at that point, just like in the background. You know, he didn't realize the mic was on. Yeah. Mama, like, bring me some gumbo windows. I need seventy-two poor boys. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, 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 and welcome everyone to another week of 1001 Album Complaints. This is the podcast where lifelong friends, musicians, and general complainers get together to discuss albums from Robert Dimery's list of 1001 albums you must hear before you die. We will give some in-depth takes on individual tracks, give you some background of the artists and the recording process, and at the end, give a vote and tell you whether or not you really need to listen to this and why. We are very excited to be talking about the album Gree Gree by Dr. John the Night Tripper. Is that his full name? Well, that is what he goes as for this particular recording. Uh, Dr. John the Night Tripper. All right. We can, we'll get more into the reasoning behind that. But first, by way of introduction to what we have been listening to, maybe one would say suffering through this week, we're going to play a little snippet of the first song off of this album called Gree Gree Gumbo Yaya. They call me Dr. Jones, known as the Night Tripper. Got my satchel of Gree Grees in my hand. Dig me tripping up and back down to buy you. I'm the last of the best, they call me the greedy man. Got many clients, come from miles around, running down my prescription. I got medicine to cure all y'all's ills. I got remedies of every description. All right, welcome back everyone. Now, we are going to throw it around the room and by way of introduction to all of our cast of characters here, we are going to give you a tweet length review of this album. So I am first going to throw it over to Adam. Hey everybody, this is Adam. And my quick review was boom dap doom flap dip dap dap, which translates to Dr. John violates the Hippocratic Oath for 33 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I can tell the way this episode's going already. Let's throw it over to our special guest first appearance on the podcast here. We're gonna throw it over to Bob. Sip everyone. My review for this is uh I guess it's going to be totally different than the masses here. What I uh, threw down was Chris Chris introduces Dr. John to the masses. This is not your typical New Orleans style music that is spilling out of the bars on Bourbon Street. They're, these are unusual textured sounds that take much influence from voodoo and second line style music while also incorporating some of the psychedelic music that was coming out of L.A. at the time. Take a bunch of exiled New Orleans musicians, throw in a voodoo root doctor, enough narcotics to drop Andre the Giant, <laughs> and you have a truly swampy, 
down and dirty voodoo magic cult favorite. You may have changed changed my mind right with that tweet. All right. <laughs> I mean, let's put tweet in air quotes here. That'd definitely be a part one, part two, right. part three tweet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's let's throw it let's throw it on over to Rob. Hey everybody. Grigri is like if Kamala from WWF made a record. <laughs> No, here's what I really wrote in my tweet-length review. Like jambalaya made by a meth head, this record is a thick stew of randomly selected unsavory items. Your most common thought while consuming it is, dear God, what am I putting in my body? (laughs) Okay. It's going to be a long hour. (laughs) Uh, All right. And this is Tom here. Adam, you kind of stole my thunder a little bit on the tweet length review because I wrote out this great tweet length review, which is, you know, sometimes you're walking in the swamp and the alligator comes out and he's got a hat on. He says, you know, my feet are a little sore. And then he gives you some shrimp and grits. Hey, mama. Best chorus on the record. (laughs) (laughs) I have alternates, Tom. If you want to go with that one, by all means. It's okay. It's okay. I think that there's not, we cannot hammer home enough how much mumbling (laughs) goes on on this album. (laughs) Oh, man. So, as we said, this is the debut album by Dr. John who was going by Dr. John, the Night Tripper for this album, came out January 22nd of 1968. Now it is time for my favorite segment of the podcast, Guess the Number One Song in America, on January 22nd, 1968. There is a 0% chance you guys are going to guess this one. So it's not a Beatles song. It's not a Beatles song. 68. I'm just going to save you some pain here, because you're never going to guess it. It is Judy in Disguise with Glasses by John Fred and his Playboy band. (laughs) What chart is that on? (laughs) It is uniquely terrible. I like I I'd be I'm tempted to say we should drop in a clip of that right now cuz it is pretty uniquely terrible. The it's like the cheesiest of the cheese. So, just for everybody's listening pleasure, let's drop in a clip of this right now. the musical landscape that he is putting this album out in i I think you can say it's safe to say it's a departure (laughs) i mean okay yeah yeah fair enough 1968 had a lot more to offer the landscape (laughs) i mean there's a few things going on (laughs) there there might have been one or two things going on in 1968 musically i don't know but this is the debut album of dr john now we're going to give you a little bit of background on dr john and like literally my first note here is jesus where do i start um, i'm, ex- I'm well, can excited you, maybe can can you tell us where he studied for that phd or uh, <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna shock you here uh it was nolens uh, he was born 1941 in new orleans usa malcolm john rebenack jr sometimes went by mac rebenack before he settled on dr john very interesting guy so 
apparently had a very musical family. They would play quote unquote minstrel songs all around the piano and on the porch around what I'm just guessing is probably a jug of corn liquor or something. <laughs> hold um, on, hold on, hold on. We, the album itself is enough evidence to get him canceled right now. We don't need more, Tom. <laughs> I heard minstrel and like, oh. Yeah. yeah. So the odd thing about him is that he had access to music like really early on in life his dad ran a like appliance store that also sold records and was super into new orleans jazz huh and he somehow had crazy access to like the musical world from a young age before he was even a professional musician which by the way started when he was 16 years old he name checks having been able to be like observing a little richard recording session just kind of in there and like watching little richard record which is super damn cool. Yeah. So basically, he gets hired as a producer for Ace Records at the age of 16. He's already playing guitar and playing out in different nightclubs and stuff at the time. He went to a very strict Jesuit school, and they basically said, when he was 16 years old, they said, listen, your studies are, are suffering, you're playing at nightclubs, you're doing all this music thing, like, you got to stop that or we're going to expel you. And he said, fuck that. And they expelled him and he dropped out of school and has been a working musician for his entire life. You said he was producing then. at 16? He was hired as a oh, producer. Jeez, yeah. that's intense. Which makes a lot of the choices on this album very really questionable. We'll get to that. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. yeah he, he didn't go to mixing class, I guess. <laughs> but he was like skipping school in like the fifth grade and going down to Canal Street and just checking out the bands at their closing at like 8 a.m. Explains his grasp of the English language if he stopped going to school in fifth grade. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Well, I mean, he's like, I'm sorry. He's like a Creole swap I know. person. I'm sorry, Bob. <laughs> like, he, w- yeah. he was into it, you know. He was yeah, into right, it. Right, right. That's a good point. If this guy is running your fan boat, I'm a little concerned. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I read I read that he started on piano, but he switched to guitar as a strategic move because New Orleans had a lot of piano players and had a lot of... New Orleans uh, music scene is kind of known for piano players and trumpet players, like Louis Armstrong's from New Orleans, for instance. And he switched over to guitar strategically. I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah, he right. got... Um, who was the guy um, who sort of g- gave him the inspiration for uh, for starting to play? Uh, Professor oh, Longhair, long, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Who was a he was a like a bluesy kind of New Orleans jazzy piano player. He has a very unique style of playing that apparently came from when he grew up. He learned how to play the piano on a piano that's missing a bunch of keys, and so he has this odd style that's not very chordal. It's but it's like very percussive. It's it's interesting. Yeah. Well, I I read. I've studied Longhair a little bit, and I think he met Longhair when he came back to New Orleans after the L.A. stint. But, yeah, he was probably inspired by him because, like, Longhair is the guy that wrote Tipitina, which is considered kind of like a anthem of New Orleans. There's a famous club named that. But I know that one of the – Longhair kind of typifies the New Orleans style of piano, and a lot of it, like you said, Tom, it's percussive. It was – from when the piano was the only instrument that was rocking the house party. So the low end on the piano kind of had to be the drums, had to get the thing that got you moving. You know, that that was an aspect of it. Yeah. So at the time that Dr. John drops out of school to focus on being a musician, he kind of realizes that, you know, being a musician is not really paying all the bills. And so he starts running a brothel. And uh, also starts selling drugs. This is at 17 years old, right? <laughs> and uh, is arrested 
and serves two years in prison. Jeez. Actually, from six in sixty four, sixty five, he was in prison on on a drug beef in Louisiana in the sixties. Which I I mean, maybe he had like you know a couple of like uh you know crazy jazz cigarettes on him or something like that, and he got considering he started uh, narcotics at twelve years old. He started taking them at that age, so he's Jeez. he he's in the life. Let's you know. I appreciated the Wikipedia line about in his bio that said, due to drug problems and the law, Rebenak moved to Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah, he's got the heat close on his tail. This is another one of those ones where I'm like, you started you started using hard drugs in your early teens Jesus. and you somehow lived to 77. Like maybe there's hope for my lazy unexercising ass that I won't drop dead of heart attack in my 50s if that's if you can live to your late 70s having done hard drugs your entire life. I think he may actually be a Creole witch doctor. Like voodoo oh, yeah. and black magic are the only things that are keeping him alive at this point. <laughs> Well, no, he's dead. He died. Oh, all right, all right. Yeah, he died in 2019. But, but he did have his own temple at one point. So, <laughs> of course, as one yeah. does. As one yes. does. All right. He's growing on me with each passing yeah. moment. And every time Bob chimes <laughs> in, I'm like, all right, well, all right, all right. So, Bob, you might have some more context on this, but uh, I read that uh, one of the reasons he switched from guitar back to piano is that his finger was injured in a like gunshot type scuffle in a Jacksonville nightclub. Oh yeah. I, I got like some ridiculous. info on this. I, re- <laughs> yes. I read uh, his book over the weekend under the, uh, a hoodoo moon. Wait, there are wait, okay, stories. So he wrote a book. Oh, is it Is there a glossary in the book? I think that's the oh, question. Oh, there definitely was, you know, and I could understand like every second word. So it was kind of piecing it together, you know. <laughs> From what he was saying, uh, on Christmas Eve, he was playing a gig in Jacksonville. He was missing like his singer, uh, Ronnie Barron. And he was like, what, what the hell? So he went into his motel room. And he found Ronnie being pistol whipped by the motel owner, okay, <laughs> for messing with the motel owner's woman. This was before the gig, not after the gig, <laughs> when this was going on. All right. So he tried to save, uh, you know, his singer, grabbed the gun, was outside, just like, you know, trying to grab it. The guy ended up shooting, shot his ring finger off on his fretting hand. What? Yeah, so it was like hanging off, on off. by like a like thread. Gone? Holy crap. So, you know, after he beat the living hell out of the guy, he realized that guitar might not be for him anymore. <laughs> Please tell <laughs> me they still played the gig. <laughs> <laughs> if you're dope to the gills on enough. <laughs> I'm going to yeah. assume they did just because yeah. of how they yeah. were back just, in that time. Just rub some fish on it. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, rub some dirt, some grigri, you know. Yeah. So because of that, because he couldn't feel, you know, he got surgeries and everything was okay, but he had no feeling in his left hand. So when he played guitar, you know, whenever he used his ring finger, it would be like, didn't sound like anything. So he started playing the bass. And then he realized he just wasn't really into that. So uh, hold on, he started let's, playing. Let's pause on that for a second. Okay, all he's right. like, first of all, I can barely fret. I suck. I can't feel anything. The instrument for me is bass. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Man, he, Come on, yeah. guitar players. Well, you, you need like three fingers for bass. Come on, that's <laughs> <laughs> three fingers is way too many. 
<laughs> Fuck all well, you guys. But then he's good. <laughs> right, right. Uh, no, it's, it, it, it is, it's funny, though, because the style of piano, I didn't know he was even missing a finger or even a piece of his finger because the style of piano playing he plays or that I know him for is is very bottom heavy. It's very left oh, yeah. hand focused, and it's 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 uh, it's intense and stridy and stuff. I don't know. Maybe he ultimately did a calculus that said, "Well, you know, one out of four on the fretting hand, I'm I'm down twenty five percent versus one out of ten, I'm down ten percent on the piano." But yeah, yeah, I could see that, and you know, I I would imagine that, and I'm not a piano player, um, but when you're putting together. Are you doing a lot of four note chords on the low side of the piano when you're No, yeah, but what yeah. but the way he plays is a lot of walking bass line, like boogie mm, woogie okay. bass line type stuff with his with his left hand. So it's not about chording. I mean, yeah, so I guess he compensated to your point, but I'm just a little surprised cuz the ring finger seems pretty important. Yeah, yeah, I use that one a lot. It's a pretty important one. So, you know, Listen, let, let's let's keep moving so we can get to the music here. We don't need this to be a, a two-hour episode talking about <laughs> Dr. Jack. He gets out of jail. That's where we are in the storyline. He's, you know, injured finger and all. He gets out of jail, and he decides he's going to move to L.A. And then becomes a member of the Wrecking Crew, which is, like, kind of crazy. He's, wow. he, he's the guy that the Wrecking Crew starts calling to uh, to play on various albums. Now, he played on some pretty big albums. He was on the Frank Zappa. Uh, he was on Freak Out with Frank Zappa and the Mothers. He played on some Sonny and Cher songs. He claims in his in his bio that he played on Exile on Main Street, but I cannot verify that anywhere else that he actually was on Exile on Main Street. He's not in the liner notes for Exile on Main Street, but he says that he is. <laughs> he he makes an appearance in the Last Waltz. I remember. Oh yeah, that was good. I was going to say with Frank Zappa, he actually showed up for the session and was told that he was given like a six note little thing to play over and over. And over that Frank Zappa had like a 20 piece choir making like (laughs) monster sounds going over it. So he kind of figured he had enough. Uh, He told them that he had to use the bathroom and just walked out and of the just session. Just left. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm good. <laughs> Wait, hold on. How, imagine how dare he? Because that sounds remarkably similar to his recording I was process. Say, can you imagine <laughs> what it would take to freak out Dr. John? My God. They must have all been naked as well. Well, might have freaked out Dr. John was, uh, you know, Frank Zappa was very famously sober and oh, was not a druggie. Yes. And so it might have been call. like, listen, I'm, I'm like four tabs ass deep and it's two o'clock in the <laughs> afternoon here. <laughs> like, I don't know if I can hold it together without fixing again for, you know. Yeah. I like I like um, deep drug weirdness, not straight edge weirdness. <laughs> yeah. Dr. John was not a psychedelic man. You know, his, his not was more hard man. drugs. Hard, hard drugs. Yeah, he was a heroin yeah. addict, I think, at a point, right? Oh, for like 34 years plus. Jesus. He was, he was intense. <laughs> I, guess that, I guess that Grigri money goes pretty far for a habit there. <laughs> Jesus Christ. So, yeah, he's in the Wrecking Crew. It is during this time that he starts to sort of develop this persona that he wants to put on a... I believe it was originally intended to be like a stage performance of this Dr. John, Dr. John the Night Tripper. It was inspired by some regionally infamous guy in New Orleans who went by Dr. John. It was a witch doctor slash medicine man 
who sold Grigri to people, which are apparently like voodoo protection amulets and various cures for what ails you. And he envisioned that being a different person as Dr. John. He was going to be the guy kind of behind the scenes sort of doing all the uh, like production and arrangement and stuff like that. And he had a different singer in mind. Bob, you look like you have something to, to add on this. Oh, I, I'm just trying to find the name of the guy, but it was. He was trying to give it to his uh, the singer at the band at the moment. Uh, Ronnie Barron. Ronnie Perrin, yeah, it's the yes. same guy he was in the, uh, yeah. he lost the finger over, I think, right? Yeah, yeah. Ronnie Perrin's manager wanted him to go a more Curtis Mayfield route, so he kind of mm. like slashed that idea. So uh, Mac actually took on the, the character of Dr. John instead and went with it. Yeah, apparently he was like, he didn't have a singer and they were like getting up to the recording time because he had snagged some unused Sonny and Cher recording time oh, uh, yeah, from yeah. the studio. <laughs> And uh, it was just like, I guess I'll just be the singer now. And I- I'm going to go ahead and put singer in some serious <laughs> some, quotes. Some pretty big quotes. Yeah, that's what, I was, <laughs> yeah. that's what I was thinking leading into this podcast. I'm literally on 90 minutes sleep. I just got up five minutes before we hopped on this here call. And I feel totally qualified to both write the lyrics <laughs> and do lead vocals on this record. <laughs> I see it in the eyes, Rob. <laughs> uh, I do think, though, that thinking of this Dr. John persona and this entire production is more of like a concept album that almost like Jesus Christ superstar style would have accompanied a, a stage show made it make a little bit more sense to me. And then it hit and he's just like, well, I'm just Dr. John forever now. I guess that's going to be me. I, I agree that, 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 that softens it a little bit, but just sorry, since you brought up my favorite, of all time, JC Superstar, I have to correct you. That was not intended to accompany a stage show. The stage show came later. And I do... Yes, but, I but didn't know the, that. I don't know why I mentioned that. <laughs> but in this case, I, I think you're hinting at something that we are certainly going to talk about, which is like part of Dr. John's thing, I heard him say, is that he wanted to bring Mardi Gras to the stage. So it was this big visual production at a time when big visual productions weren't that popular. And listen, and, and all the anecdotes I hear of people running into Dr. John, loving Dr. John, falling in love with Dr. John's music, involve them meeting the guy and seeing his show. So the fact that I'm deprived of that is a factor here. I I can acknowledge. Sure. I got to say, I did see Dr. John at the Grand Opera House, 2007. It it wasn't with the Grigory album. It wasn't that type of music. It was just like standard, like New Orleans R&B you know, at that point. So what really got me was the stage presence. He came out, there were like skeletons on his piano, amulets everywhere, Grigri's amulets everywhere. He walked out with conjuring sticks. Like the man is like a voodoo master (laughs) over here. Owning that persona 50 years after the fact. He seems like he would be goddamn insufferable to hang out with. Like oh. I could not imagine. Well, so, yeah, does he keep him. this up while you're having a beer? <laughs> exactly. It's got that big hat on. Oh. Come on. Can you just take the hat off so I can eat my cheesecake? Yeah, he he records this album Grigri in LA. So he wanted to sort of bring New Orleans to LA as well. So we brought in New Orleans musicians and everything, but I pictured this being recorded in some kind of, you know, corrugated shack, a hollowed out log or something like that. But no, interestingly, um, it was recorded at Gold Star Studios in L.A. 
ton of big acts came through Gold Star Studios. We're talking like huge, gigantic acts, the likes of Art Garfunkel and Maurice Gibb. But even some smaller acts like Jimi <laughs> Hendrix and Led Zeppelin recorded there. <laughs> so they did have proper recording equipment then, is that correct? They did. So they had proper recording equipment, but what they were known for was uh, Dave Gold, the owner of the studio, one of the two owners of the studio, he made a lot of the equipment, and they also were known for their echo rooms. Like, they had very, like, um, big rooms specifically to get crazy echo, and I think you can hear some of that on this recording. The reason why he left New Orleans was because in 1962, they had a new district attorney named James Garrison, and he cracked down hard on all the the clubs, on all the gambling dens, the brothels, places where, you know, New Orleans musicians, musicians hang out. are playing, right, exactly. you know? <laughs> right. So it was almost like a brain drain. You shut down the whorehouses, I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 it kind of reminded me of uh, the Count Basie episode. You're talking about 1917, that everyone just left New Orleans, going to Kansas City to play. It was kind of similar to what happened here. So he basically went out to L.A. and hooked up with a lot of his friends that were out there. And uh, got session gigs through that. Interesting. Well, hey, a little fun fact is that guy, that district attorney you just mentioned, Jim Garrison, is played by Kevin Costner in the Oliver Stone film JFK. Oh, yeah. The, the back and to the left back guy. Back to the left, yes, yeah. Uh, you know, I got to be honest, I know that movie just through cultural touchstone references. I've never actually sat through all like two hours and- That was boring you know, as hell. 97 minutes of it or whatever. So- Let's get back to let's get back to Dr. John here. He's in Gold Studios. He records this album. They don't really have a ton of time to do it, and they come out with this album Grigri, which when it was released, not really a hit. I think <laughs> no that uh, yeah, oh, I think that uh, the original run sold like you know like less than like fifty thousand copies. Not even that. Like it was it was very very muted in its response, but it has been in retrospect lauded as a fantastic psych rock album apparently when he presented this to the record company the exact quote from the record executive was like how can we market this boogaloo crap and they did not want to they didn't want to release it i could totally get why they didn't want to release it but nowadays pretentious ass music critics uh not like us no, uh, of course other not. kinds of, of pretentious not. ass music critics have lauded this as a seminal work of the of the 60s <sighs> rolling stone had it as its 143rd greatest album of all time what so, in god's name are they talking about <laughs> it's i think that it's that old fucking chestnut of it's so inaccessible that it's it got to be, be great good. yeah it must right. be great right the average person can't like this and i'm better than the average person so i can like this <laughs> i no listen i i hope we're going to hear more about and I, I, we're starting to hear a story about why this was a forward thinking and used a lot of sonic textures that were not at all common or you know were, were considered new at the time i i can totally buy that there were new things going on in this record but that doesn't make it age that doesn't make it listenable and it does not make the songs good so i just want to draw that distinction i would say that if we're if we're rolling into our general impressions on the album here the album succeeds when it is trying to bring 
like New Orleans sound to psychedelia. It, it, it succeeds on occasion for that. But there are a couple of songs that just sound like they're just rehashes of old New Orleans standards, and they sound very ho-hum, and I can't really get behind them. Yeah, and, you know, actually on that note, I heard that... I didn't actually go listen to this, but I think it might have been on his second or third record. He did a cover of the New Orleans classic Ico Ico, and that's a big part of what brought that into the public consciousness. So it occurs to me that maybe he was trying to do that, kind of in that almost in that Willie Nelson way we talked about with Redheaded Stranger, trying to take these old songs and bring them reinterpret to more, and right to yeah, reinterpret yeah. and make them make them popular on a larger scale, and it just didn't work this time. I liked how, by the way, if you read the bio on Dr. John's website, he said there's something in there that's like he really wanted to work with his lifelong friend Willie Nelson, but you know they were never able to make it happen. I'm like Willie Nelson's recorded like ninety some fucking albums. He could have made that happen <laughs> yeah, he, if he wanted he to. The answer, yeah. Yeah. the answer is drugs, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Drugs, state lines. I'm sure had something to do with this. Or maybe Willie was just like, you know, man, you got your thing, and that's cool. I got my thing, and that's cool, too. Let's, you know, we don't need to mix the things. Oh, good Lord. Can we talk for a second about just the, I'll say, like, audio ergonomics of this album? What the fuck is up with the mixing on this album? Dude, that's the worst part about it. How did they let a deaf person mix this? (laughs) I kept trying to give him the benefit of the doubt, but then I was thinking about what was going on in 1968. And there were definitely clear ways and clean ways to cut tracks and splice and punch in. And they're they're done in such a way that every time it happens, it, it knocks you out of what little bit I was already into the song when it's like this blatant, you know, like you walk yeah. into the old time yeah. bar and the record player goes, Arr! Like it felt like that every time. I, I found a little. I found a little transcript uh, of a conversation between two of the sound engineers, a junior and a senior. Junior engineer, hey, should we bring the band that's playing these songs into the actual studio, or is being three rooms away from the microphones okay? <laughs> senior engineer, no one's allowed near the mic except that gibberish spouting hobo. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. They might have made a good choice on some of that because there are a couple of times where I think that they might literally be playing a pile of trash cans for drums. <laughs> it sounds so bad. <laughs> there are some times where it reaches levels of hypnotic, which is cool. And when it does that, I'm like, I can see the whole, you know, I'm the voodoo priest and, you know, I have my acolytes around me type of vibe that was probably going on in the studio. There were probably scarves draped on a lot of things and beads everywhere and stuff. But oh, definitely, it didn't. It just didn't catch me. I feel like I waited for the album to start for the entirety of the album. I was just kind of waiting for it to start. And I do think a big part of that is the truly bizarre panning choices that were done in the mix. The only thing that is ever center panned is Dr. John's voice. Everything else is hard panned left or hard panned right. And I don't understand why you would do that. It makes it so hard for everything to mix. Are we talking about the all the songs in general or specifically the first song here? Oh, no. It shows up on every song. I, <laughs> I have continuous notes about okay. this. I'm pretty sure that the backup female singers never leave just exclusively the right channel, with the exception of one time where, like, 
I think as a lark in the first song, they just switch everything. Yeah. The drums go from hard pan right to hard pan left, and they just switch it all for a, for a verse. And then they switch it back. And you're like, why? Why are you doing that? Yeah, very annoying. I equated it to like, do you guys remember there was one of those Bond films uh, with Pierce Brosnan where he was like surfing something down like this terrible CGI wave? Anyway, it's like it's known oh, as like God, one of the yeah. worst CGI effects in the last 50 years. And it's so it's so obvious that it pulls you out of the moment. And that happened so many times with Dr. John and the band. Like it was so obvious that he was nowhere near the band. They weren't live in the room. And the whole time I'm picturing it's not this, you know, we suspend disbelief for a lot of bands, right? We, we know in the studio, they're not always in the same room doing it at the same time, but it's mixed in such a way that you can at least kind of pretend that in your head and you get this vision of them all in the studio rocking. You can't do that with this album because his voice is so poorly mixed with the rest of the band. It really just does sound like the the band mailed him a tape and then he put it on and just kind of, you know, did his vocals, you know, on a Casio tape recorder or something. Generally speaking, if you're focusing on the mix, especially on first listen, that is not a good mix. <laughs> you should not be like Man, the mix is the thing that's really jumping out to me on first listen. Like for something like Thriller, you can really go layers down and like unappreciate the mix. But my first listen, I was just like, what the hell is going on here? This is fucking bizarre. <laughs> and especially that first track, to Bob's point, I, I think it really hits you pretty hard right away. You're like, what is going on? They screwed up. They need to do this again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And that set the tone. To, to give you some more context on that, we're going to jump back into this first track, Gree Gree Gumbo Yaya, ya, and you can hear a little bit more of what we're talking about. Some wall water if your neighbors give you trouble, put your business in the street. Seal of Jupiter, my whole car, they just won't be beat. Try my dragon's blood, my drawing tied in my sacred sand. Never a little black cat oil if your woman got another man. Some goof of dust, we need a light bottle, ball sticks, pine, I know that you're not the palm of your hand. Devil shoes strange, you know, like the same. Put her on your woman's feet and see if she don't know that one and bury her from All right, Bob, what do you got to say about this song? I really just want to know what what does boss fix jam in your breakfast do? Or what does it mean? I could have could have sworn he said balls and I kept his put your balls on your chest. It was what is going on, Dr. John? Yeah, it's boss like the uh, the pedals. I thought it was balls fix like you got ball problems. I got this ball fix jam that you can put in your breakfast to help fix your balls. <laughs> I would love some ball fix jam. It sounds great. <laughs> he is a medicine man. Oh, it's God. just all like incantations, man. The, the entire lyrics just seem to be uh, like evil black magic that he's throwing on somebody. I have that. The list of remedies that he put down there is something that I would make up if I was trying to make fun of like Louisiana swamp people. <laughs> it's, it's not as compelling as he thinks that it is. Like, so, so we ended last week. I put this track on, you know, pretty much right after the podcast. First listen, 
First thing I wrote down when this song came on was, let's record a song, but don't wake up dad. (laughs) (laughs) It is remarkably quiet, all but his voice, which is like four times louder than the drums. It's insanely loud. And breaks up at a couple points, too, as he's talking. You can hear the, the mic breaking up. I have, there's actually a couple of times on this song that you can hear tape crackle. And you can hear the sound of like dirty pots on the mixing board, like when they're changing stuff. You can hear the because <laughs> they're like the pots are a little dirty. Like it's just it's fucking bizarre. Don't worry, it's it's five minutes and thirty seconds long, so you're you're good, you're covered. You, by pots, by pots, to be clear, you mean potentiometers? Is that right? Uh, yes. Knobs, I mean. knobs for those of you. <laughs> I guess I, just, I, 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 you know, I don't. I don't think everyone knows what that means. We talk yeah, about yeah. potting someone up. Yeah, yeah, true. I, I, I like the jive of his voice though when he's doing this. It just reminds me of like an old jazz cat, you know, just going for it. He has an iconic voice. Yeah, yeah he has an iconic but, voice. There's no, there's no denying that. But I think that that to me seemed to be. The beginning and the end of the concept is I got this crazy voice and I can talk about some voodoo shit. Well, it's okay. like fla- flash forward to two or three albums. He's got the meters as his backing band and the same voice. And lo and behold, he has a mega hit in right place, wrong time. Yeah. But he, he was throwing that as more like standard New Orleans R&B. You know, this this seemed to be like his experimental session. In which he was trying to do more like voodoo, second line, drumming, like two and four with the double accents, with just some crazy incantations over it. So, Which is crazy for a debut album. Like, I'll give you uh, yeah, that. It like, it's that's, ballsy. That's bold, yeah. It's definitely ballsy. But again, I had such a hard time hearing the fucking instruments on this album. No, never hard pan all of your drums to one side. It never sounds good. Never do that. Hold on. I just have a general, I have a general question. Feel free to bring it up again. The answer during any of these song discussions is who did this influence? Point me the line of who listened to this record and made more music like this in America. This is going to sound weird, but I, I saw some of a through line with Funkadelic. Ah, I really can't put my finger on it, and I, I can't remember the timelines. I feel like that Funkadelic album we talked about was like 72, 73, but I can hear shades of this in the Funkadelic stuff. But uh, yeah, I don't know. That That's a very loose, uh, I wish I could give a little more detailed example there. Maggot Brain was 71, by the okay. way. That's the, that's the Funkadelic album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The drums and the syncopation. That comes no, I, with I that, think he or? means the experimental nature of it. Maybe yeah, it was just not the not the actual funkiness, right? Not like the actual Parliament stuff. The and maybe it was uh, just Chocolate the, City, the psychedelia aspect. But that was also had been going on for for quite some time. I mean, you had a lot of those you know uh, British rock bands doing the psychedelic stuff, like Ultimate Spinach and and all those those weird ones from the sixties. I think at this album at its best, it sounds like field recordings of you know of i went deep into the congo i'm like joseph conrad or the protagonist from heart of darkness with the with the microphone and i got some really cool shit and if you sold it to me a little more like that and removed dr john's voice from most of the <laughs> most of the tracks i'd be way more into it so like i do think there's some really interesting textures here but i just I, it feels like it was thrown together haphazardly this seems like an album that is ripe 
for a remaster. Like, give me a remix. Give me a remaster. Because I'm just going to throw these timestamps out here, and we can toss in just one or two of these. At 127, when everything, the vocals are all mixed right, uh, the backups are all mixed right, drums, bass, and guitar are mixed left, and then they just switch out of nowhere. If you got love troubles, you got a bad woman you can't control, I got just the thing for you. Something called control and hearts will get together. It is so terrible. It is, I, I, I could see that being like, oh, this is a cool thing to try. And then you do it and listen back and you go, oh, that doesn't work. And you don't do that. And <laughs> But they kept it in. <laughs> they kept it in. Well, and not only did they keep it in, they then, for 11 seconds at 2.15... They all go to the center, and then they flip back again. Where one's on the left, one's on the right. It's it's a yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. I did not understand that. Again, I, I appreciate the experimentation, but maybe they didn't have enough time because that seems like an experiment that you do when you go, okay, well, that didn't work. Which has happened a ton of times in the studio for me personally, at least. Been like, hey, let's try this thing, and you try it, and you're like, well, let's re- let's erase that because that's never going. <laughs> that's never going to be heard outside of this room. That's terrible. This song it has that ethereal feel that comes from that sort of non-standard drumming that they're doing, but it went on too long and didn't offer me enough, and I, I got tired of Doctor John's voice before this first song was even over. Not a great place to be when his voice is the only thing center mixed and out front for the entire album. I'm going to dive into the genius of some of these lyrics. Not <laughs> 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 Or we can move on to the next song on our focus list, Mama Roo. Look, this is better. This is better than the first track, for sure. The opening groove is kind of cool. I mainly just wish he stayed off the mic for a little longer. This was a song on this album that stuck in my mind. You know, I'd, I'd be waking up in the middle of the night and just the haziness would come along and I'll go away. And all of a sudden, you know, it'd just be like, Mama Roo, getting gas. That, that's I'd catchy. Just, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'd just be sitting there and all of a sudden it'd just pop into my head. If this was the part of one of the of one of the songs, I'd be like, "Yeah, that was a cool part." It doesn't make a whole song though. Doesn't make a whole song. My note on this, like my my first note is, it's like instead of being super into the Caribbean and clear liquors, Jimmy Buffett got into New Orleans and heroin. <laughs> <laughs> At least this sounds like a song, right? But right. Uh, I was. I was not a huge fan of this song. It did get stuck in my head, and I wasn't happy about that. I wasn't walking around going, Mama Roo. Oh, yeah, all right. I was like, get out of my head. Never going to be invited back to this I had to, like, you know, hum the beginning of that Pearl Jam song, (laughs) Daughter. (laughs) (laughs) The the bass line is done on the Hammond bass pedals. Yeah, so that's That's pretty damn cool. That's the coolest part of the song. This came on, I was like, oh, shit, there's some low end there, Bo, like super low and a little overdriven. 
Yeah, I, I, I totally dig the, the Hammond bass pedals there. For people who don't know what Adam yes, is talking about. thank you. You can probably give a better description. Sure, than yeah. I, so but, yeah. Uh, a Hammond organ is, as you picture, uh, it's, it's an organ that has two, two keyboards that you use your hands on. If you have a full-size B3 Hammond organ, there's actually a series of like 20 foot pedals that, that the person who's playing actually rests their feet on top of it, and they can play bass notes on essentially a giant keyboard made for your feet. So the bass notes on this song are being done by somebody stepping on those pedals as they're playing the Hammond organ. Which I got to assume that's Dr. John doing that? Yeah, he's a good, yeah. He's I, I a good piano assume. player. Yeah, yeah. I've heard him play organ or uh, keyboard and organ before, yeah, and he's he's good. He's definitely competent. This is another one of those ones where I dig the drum sound. Like I like the I like the style of drums that they're kind of putting into it. But they, again, they just make it hard to hear that stuff because everything else is so far out front. Like his voice is just so far out front. And then at one point, so you guys notice this in the song how they kind of fade him out. And like right at 220, the chicka chicka comes in and he's still just mumbling in the background, but they just, they just pulled him down and they're like, this is just garbage. We got to pull you down. We got to move this chicka chicka up to be the loudest thing in the song by a mile. Yes. I think he was ordering food at that point, just like in the background, you know, he didn't realize the mic was on. Yeah. Mama, bring me some chicka. gumbo windows. I need 72 poor boys. <laughs> I think at one point in this song, he says, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. And then he says, wham, bam, hang ham. <laughs> Dude, that's a New Orleans sex move. You I was going to say, that sounds hang the like, ham. you know, got to hang yeah. that ham. I had a wild night last night. I was hanging ham. <laughs> I, I have a question here. How many times has wham, bam, thank you, ma'am appeared in songs? I looked up, and I think the first noted reference was back in some, uh, either a Broadway musical or a movie from like 1945 and 1947, and I don't think it was sexual at the time, because I had the same exact thought, Bob. That's crazy, yeah. Back in the day, that's just talking about just giving your wife one-two across the face and she gets mouthy. It's like... <laughs> Much more acceptable. <laughs> Wham, bam. Thank you, man. <laughs> but of course, I know, I, we know it from uh, Suffragette City. Right, I assume right. that's part of what yeah. you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is a very annoying song to me. And I do have to comment on some of the songs on this album that are like very, very long, really actually worked for me better. Like the the last song, I Walk on Gilded Splinters, like seven and a half minute song. That worked for me better than some of these tight little ditties like this one and another one we're going to talk about later. I don't know why. It just. This song graded on me really badly. Well, that's a song that uh, was covered the most, you know, I guess kind of got the, the most the most popular song out of the Sure, because uh, it actually the, sounds the like a song. Yeah. <laughs> like, I could cover this. this Which is, is kind of weird, like, uh, Sonny and Cher, well, Cher did uh, a cover of it. Uh, Widespread Panic did a cover of it, which, you no, know, no kind of makes sense. Go. There yeah. we go. So now we're talking about Walk on Gilded Splinters, right? Are we shifting yeah, over yeah, there? yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. We're not. We're not talking about that song yet. We're not talking oh, about okay. that. Okay, right, I'll put, I'll put a pin on it. Talk about. <laughs> I thought you were talking about Mama Roo is the the most um, uh, played song because it actually does sound like a song. Uh, I jumped ahead of myself. Pardon. As moi. opposed to the next one, and I'm gonna 
try to pronounce this dance fambo. Oh yeah. I guess so. Bob, what do you think of this song? Defend this song, please. <laughs> Defend this song. <laughs> it's a rough spot to be in, Bob, but thank you for joining us tonight. <laughs> Bob's going to pull Dr. John and just walk out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me just shut everything down and walk out. I don't know, man. I The first time I, I listened to this album through, I, I was skeptical. I really was. But the more times I listened to it, it, it just really grew on me. And the whole fact was that it just just so different from what he did after this, you know? And a lot of it was just, he seemed to take, you know, it wasn't just like tourist New Orleans music, you know, like Dixieland and all that. This was really like people who lived in New Orleans playing. This was the the voodoo element with it, the the, the hoodoo element with it. You're saying there's voodoo and hoodoo? Is there hunky donkey choo-choo? yes. Voodoo yeah. is the organized religion. <laughs> Hoodoo is the, I guess you could say the metaphysical, the the spells, the potions, the black magic. A lot of these songs are basically just vamps, you know, going off, which I kind of like. I don't know. I don't have much to say about this song, honestly. It's, it just sounds like any of the other ones, but I, I, I kind of dug it, you know. But some of the lyrics on here, I just don't understand. Some he of seems the like he's doing, <laughs> yeah, some of the lyrics, uh, especially from this, it sounds like he's just throwing out nursery rhymes for for the lyrics. I don't know. I, I still like the, the background music to it. I didn't love it, but I, I appreciated it from where it came from. You know, this this is this is old school New Orleans music. This is this is people who lived here. This is people who's mom and dad were like you know voodoo practitioners the songs and the feeling of it but came to be clear that. not dr john's mom and dad right oh dr john's mom and dad was was straight up in in this for, whole for voodoo thing. practitioners voodoo practitioners uh no probably not no but they were Denizens. new orleans multi-generational living there. sure sure yeah, sure swamp trash of course yeah. there was <laughs> Jesus Christ. Jesus. Uh, You know, on this one, I timestamped, speaking of the field recordings and the sonic textures aspect, I timestamped 105 (laughs) as the sound of your drunk dad snoring during Sunday Night Football. Oh, I thought that was actually someone <laughs> farting into the microphone. 
So it did inspire Funkadelic. I was about I to say that Funkadelic okay. fart on the last track on Maggot Brain. Yes. <laughs> Listen, yeah, I thought, thought Dr. Sean just ran out of just like inspiration, just decided to make farting noises for a second, just to bring himself back I, into the just, groove. Just, I assume there was just a pig running through the studio <laughs> from the local pad. Just, and just for fun, I also timestamped 240, which sounds like Dr. John just woke up in the vocal booth and remembered he was supposed to do something. <laughs> I mean, he might have been nodding off and just popped his head up from that. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. You know? <laughs> this is the one where I said the drum set sounds like a literal pile of garbage cans, which it does. But I do actually kind of dig the beginning of this song, basically before Dr. John comes in, because of the way that it's just a song that's in 4-4. You count it out, it's it's just 4-4, four, four, but it doesn't feel that way because they do layer a couple good rhythms on top of each other, and it makes it sound more rhythmically complex than it maybe has any right to sound because it is really just kind of like a, you know, like a one, two, three, four. But the way that they start, I guess that's a mandolin line, kind of on a weird hitch. A lot of these songs, besides like Mama Roo and uh, what you just mentioned, are based on like a 2-4 which is kind of like the second line musical style. Dr. John put it that it's a 2-4 with double accents on the beat, which can be played a million different types of ways. This was one uh, which is kind of surprising in my, in my eyes. The later records, the one after this, he's going like 11-4, like 7-5 in terms of you know the time signatures, like really getting more specific, more jazzy. Kind of jazzy, yeah, yeah, right, right. I just appreciated that they added those church bells at the end there, <laughs> which I just thought was an odd thing. Again, considering how kind of janky all the production is, they're like, we need bells, <laughs> go to the bell room. And I assume the LA studio had the bell room, so good for them. I would have done the same thing. I will say, I can take a song that is just purely one concept, but it's got to be short and it's got to be tight. This is not really short and not really no, tight. They, they missed and the mark so, on that. Yeah. Yeah, it's a little it's a little long. There is another short song that we're gonna jump to now called Jump Sturdy. With the fish, some people say she juggle fire in the ditch. Clear day on the bayou. I hated this song so much. This was my I favorite. This was your Ooh, favorite song. I hated this song so much. <laughs> it really reminded me of just a, a novelty song from right. the sixties, <laughs> which is why I think I like absolutely. It. <laughs> <laughs> it's very Doctor Demento. Yes. In comparison to the rest of the album, it also had a banjo, 
which I thought was cool. Which I, I is a banjo a uh, a swamp <laughs> swamp uh, instrument? I'm not. I mean. It's like I'd the say it could be right. Okay, okay. So yeah. yeah, it was that. I, I dug the I dug the uh, the banjo. I thought that was cool. This is actually one of the songs that he got from his uh, grandfather. His grandfather was big in uh, when he was growing up, uh, performing minstrel shows, uh, going around the country. And this was one of the songs that he used to play to Mac when he was like really young, say like eight years old, and like sitting on the stoop. You know, his grandfather would just get, uh, you know, slightly inebriated and just start singing these songs off. And actually, Jump Sturdy was a type of liquor around the Gulf Coast that apparently tasted like lemonade, but it was low in alcohol, but just enough to get people like uh, dancing to it. So he basically took the music of it, added his own lyrics to it. And just threw it out there. I love a good liquor-inspired song. Well, oh, yeah. Well done, Dr. John. Well, he was early looking for those endorsements. You know, I'd be <laughs> like, if I wrote a song about Budweiser or, uh, I don't know, Mike's Hard Lemonade or something. <laughs> well, I get, you know, Jump Sturdy could be another name for Mike's Hard Lemonade in the state. There you age, go, right, right. Exactly. You know? Yeah. I will say this is more the sound that I was expecting from Dr. John. Knowing almost nothing about his catalog, I was expecting a little bit more of the song. I also don't particularly like what I do know of his catalog. But I will say this, like, when this album succeeds, it's taken the New Orleans, like, low country sound and putting it in a, a, like, on top of a different type of music. And this just seemed like a rehash. It sounded like Minnie the Moocher. Howdy, 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 howdy. You know what I mean? Way less compelling, though. Right, well, right. It's, yeah, it's it's definitely an old school song passed on. He just he just took it at his own little uh, lyrical spin to it, and just went off with it. Yeah, he was he was just so worn out from the creative output of writing the rest of the songs that. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> nothing left in the tank. <laughs> nothing left in the tank. Nothing left in the tank, one. man. You know, <laughs> left it all in the field, baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good lord. This song is a tight 220, though. I can appreciate that. It's a tight 220. <laughs> At least it was over with fast. <laughs> Unlike Oof. I Walk on Gilded Splinters. Some people think they jive me, but I know they must be crazy. Don't see their misfortune, else they're just too lazy. Just with a grand zombie, my yellow belt of choice on. Ain't afraid of no tomcat, fill my brains with poison. Walk through the fire, fly through the smoke. See my enemy at the end of their rope. Walk on pins and needles. What they can do Walk on gilded splinters With the cane of the Zulu Think I'm gonna come on Uh, this is the best song. This is my favorite this, song. This is definitely, definitely the best song on the album. I, th- yeah, I actually yeah. kind of like this song. 
Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think Bob mentioned it was covered. It's been covered fairly extensively. I think I read that the Almond Brothers might have done it at some point, in addition to some of those other bands you mentioned. Uh, I dug it. They actually found a groove. It felt like it was mm-hmm. kind of balanced reasonably in the mix compared to the other tracks. And uh, I was maybe it was the minor melody aspect of it, and I was somewhat transfixed. This is hypnotic. Yeah, it's definitely a hypnotic song. My my first note on here is that uh, this is what I imagine that the Manson family was listening to when they were out at Spawn Ranch. Like, <laughs> just, like, totally get that vibe from it, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, the creepiest thing about them, right, is that they used to do this thing called creeping, which is they'd just break into people's homes silently and walk around and then just leave again without leaving a trace. They did that yeah. a lot. Yeah. I'll listen to this song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this inspired them. I yeah. assume they were listening to Sunshine and Lollipops, but you know. <laughs> by the time Dream I got to by the time I got to this song, you know, the we're we're fifty eight minutes into the album. So this was a, <laughs> Oh wait, I'm sorry. It was thirty three minutes long. This is only a thirty three minute album. It felt like four hours. I I could barely get through this tune. I stopped listening at 301 because the lyrics on Spotify said, repeat for most of the rest of the song. <laughs> oh my God. I actually have a like a generalized note is that whatever AI bot had to try to decipher these, <laughs> decipher these lyrics, I feel so bad for it. Poor bot. They're not right. Like I look at the Spotify lyrics, they're not right at all. And you can tell it was just some approximation of like, I think he's making this sound. And so I'm going to say that he's... Yeah, he said driveway there. He said driveway. (laughs) One thing that I kind of dug was the lyrics, till I burn up, they kind of did like a human analog delay uh, thing with him and his three other background vocals. So it sounded like he said, then one stepped away, like maybe a foot away from the mic. The other one stepped away two foot and three foot. So you kind of got that reverb when they were saying it. On and on till I burn it's up. Probably the big I echo, big up. echo room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I heard, I heard I that, that as well. I dug that part of it. Yeah. yeah. Did I So, Rob, you know why you think that this is the best song on the album? I can tell you why I think it's the best song on the album as well. It's because there's fucking percussion in both sides of the mix. There are two different percussion players, but they have percussion on the right and on the left, and it makes everything gel in a way that nothing else on this album gels because everything is so separate. But this is the one song where they have a conga player I believe is on the right and they have like traditional percussion on the left, not like, you know, drum set percussion, but there's drums on both sides. And it like, you wouldn't think it would make that much of a difference, but it makes a huge difference in terms of it actually sounding like a real song. Yeah. Yeah. This is like, it's unique. I think that this song is cool. It sounds like a seance. And I think that's probably what he's going for with a lot of his songs. I want to sound like a seance. I dug it on this one. I don't know if I'm going to be re-listening to this seven and a half minute uh, mouthful of a song anytime soon, but if it came on, I would not immediately be like, I have to turn this off. The high praise. <laughs> high, high praise. High praise for this album. <laughs> yeah. This seems to be like so, the most, the best song on this album in terms of like mass appeal. And I can see why. I can see why. He just, he just threw some shade at you, Tom. 
I, listen, I get it. I'm a, like I said, I'm a basic bitch, man. I, I decompress <laughs> listening to Mariah Carey right before this fucking podcast. I got no problem saying it. <laughs> Did anybody else notice? I feel like at 159, there's like an audible tape defect that I could hear where the sound just kind of goes just down for a second. Like there's a weird splice or like a weird tape defect. I would not be surprised. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You could probably reuse an old Sonny and Cher reel or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I kept like going back and thinking that like, is this a problem with my headphones or something like that? I'm like, no, this is consistently on there. It's a little like, like tape defect sound. Again, ripe for a remaster. IP question from back in the day. If you were to go in and reuse a reel for whatever reason, like the Sonny and Cher reel, and there was some kind of vestige of it left on your recording, a la the whole lot of love tape bleed effects, would you incur, would you have to pay a license there? Or like, how would that work? Ooh. I think that there's some percentage of similarity that the songs have to have, or, or you know, maybe some length of time. But I don't know. But actually, back in the day, that's before anybody had to pay royalties on sampling either, right? So there was all those uh, royalty-free samples from the early uh, hip-hop days. Yeah. Right, right well, for the it taking. Because it almost reminds me of, you know, how great, a lot of the great painters used to paint over top of their paintings, right, to save money mm-hmm. on canvas. Yeah, I just yeah, wonder sure. if anyone has taken seriously the idea of going over top of an existing reel of tape and trying to make some kind of sound collage specifically that way. I do remember at one point in college, I'm going to shock you here, we were quite intoxicated at the time. <laughs> there was a record that was playing a Mahavishnu Orchestra album, and there was a, the box cello suites was also playing on something else, and it just happened to match up like really awesomely. And we're like, this means something. This is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a feeling John McLaughlin, he's somewhere in Monte Carlo right now. He's smiling. <laughs> Good. I hope, I hope so. You deserve it, John. <laughs> All right. Well, that's about going to wrap up our deep dive into the tracks on Gree Gree. The Dr. John album from 1968. All that is left now, dear listeners, is to get our votes out of the way. We're going to go around the room and tell you whether or not you really do need to listen to this album before you die. I'm going to throw it first over to Adam. Lots of cool ideas on here. I think the psychedelia meets swamp people thing is an awesome idea. I think the execution is the nail in the coffin on this one. Uh, To Tom's point, I love the idea about a remix at some point. If this is ever remixed, I would love to come back to it and reconsider my vote, which is a no tonight. All right. Bob, what do you got? um, I'm going to be the odd man out, I guess, here. This album grew on me. You know, after after listening to it a couple of times, I, I really began to appreciate what he was doing in terms of really diving into the 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 old school New Orleans music vibe with the whole voodoo element of it. I'm going to have to say yes. I'm going to say this might be one that, granted, you know, Margaret from HR might not be, you're like really into this. But for a student <laughs> of New Orleans music, I, I think this is, uh, I think this is an album that you, you do have to listen to. You know, 
Right. You know what else grows on you, Bob? Skin cancer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you evil son of a bitch. <laughs> Rob, what's your vote? You know, I'm going to echo both parties that just went, Adam and Bob. It did grow on me a little bit. I'm not exactly sorry I listened to it, and I can hear that this guy, Dr. John, is reaching for something, but I do not think he found it. And I do not believe that you need to listen to every failed experiment musically throughout the years. So not sorry I listened to it this week. Do feel like it added to my understanding of the musical canon, but I have to vote no, it is not a must-hear before you die. All right. Well, I guess uh, tiebreaker to me. Or well, I maybe. could e- I could either make it a tie and get it on the list, or uh, I could get it off the list. Uh, I will not hold you in suspense. I'm I'm going to be a no on this album. Surprise. Very much like Rob. I'm not sorry that I listened to it, but like, I don't think many people have the level of uh, desire to torture themselves with music that I do. And so, <laughs> it's it, listen. It wasn't terrible. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't offensive. It wasn't enjoyable for me. Again, I just waited for the album to start the whole time and it seemed unfinished and it seemed unfocused. And, uh, I really could not get over the presentation of it. It was mixed really, really poorly. And it highlighted the part of it that I liked the least, which was the Dr. John voice part of it. That being so far out front and my least favorite element, uh, made it hard for me to get into it. And, Again, just because I don't like something doesn't mean that it's not worthwhile art, but I don't think that this is necessary to your understanding of the musical canon, so I am going to vote no. Sorry, Bob. You're the odd man out. Sorry, Dr. John. Rest in power. You did not make the list of these four dudes, but apparently you made a whole bunch of other lists of super pretentious music critics saying that it is a must hear. So hell yeah. And let's, let's not forget Dr. John's biggest accolade is that he provided the theme song for the 90s show blossom. Are you oh, fucking God kidding me? Help me out. I Help me out, Rob. That. Help me out. How did Don't know about the future. Yes. That's anybody's guess. Yes. Oh my God. Oh my God. No I idea. Such that flashbacks. Was John. God damn. Wow. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> you know what? I'm changing my vote. <laughs> I'm changing my note my vote to extra no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that kind of turns me a little too right there. <laughs> <laughs> this is the company that you're trying to walk in, Bob. The blossom theme song. <laughs> oh well. We have one last thing to do, dear listeners. Actually, two last things. We have to shamelessly plug all of our uh, socials here. So if you uh, like what we're doing, if you think that we have got it right, you think we got it wrong, if you want to crawl up out of the bayou and probably make your way to some internet cafe (laughs) and tell us that we are absolutely wrong about Dr. John and the overall New Orleans style, we would love to hear it. And there's a way that you can tell us that. You can go to 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. Send us an electronic mail that tells us that we are geniuses, tells us we're fools, tells us we're assholes, tells us we are all of the above. That would probably be the appropriate email to send us. Love to hear from you. And if it is cogent, we will read it on the air. We have an Instagram account, The Chop Unlimited. We'd love for you to tell a friend about this podcast. That is 
probably the most important thing you could do. Tell a like-minded individual about this podcast. We want to get the word out that uh, there are some really awesome albums out there, some really terrible albums out there, and we are going to complain equally about all of them. Before we wrap the show up, we have to get our homework assignment for next week. I have the Albinator here. I have... Yoda style plucked it up out of the Dagobah like swamp and uh, have <laughs> now placed it in my garage and it is all ready to go and spit out the Chanting album for next the whole week. time. Hey, can no, we swap in, instead of our normal sound? Can we swap in patoom, 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 <laughs> as the thing clicks around for the? Oh, sorry, oh. I think that would work that actually. Like, yeah. right. <laughs> Speed it up. No, just get a Dr. John mumble. <laughs> anyway. We're going to bust out the Albinator here. So let's spin that wheel. Next week, we will be listening to. All right. A little bit of a different sound. Maybe some equally unintelligible lyrics. Blood Sugar Sex Magic by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Oh. Hot damn. Now, who are these fellas? It's a band. (laughs) Also a swamp band. (laughs) Yeah. They, uh,. They're uh, they're an upstanding uh, group of young uh, go getters. Yes, who <laughs> fantastic worth it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They they sing family oriented songs. It's um, gypsy about music, prayer isn't it? circles. And, <laughs> yeah, uh, I actually have my. It's my favorite record that I found at an estate sale. It is just the cover is just black and white and a picture of some old dude and it just says old Russian gypsy songs. <laughs> That's all it, is. it is a terrible album. It's like unlistenable, but it's it's like my favorite thing to just keep out in my like record collection for people. I'd probably see. love it. <laughs> Speaking of which, Bob, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. This was awesome, man. We really appreciate it. We had a blast. Hey guys, thank you so much. Uh, this was great. Yeah, I, I appreciate you. Uh, I appreciate you becoming better researched than me and showing me up for this. It's, uh, usually, that's Rob's job. I read so a thank book. You for, for, for yeah, you did. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So for next week, listen to Red Hot Chili Peppers. Come prepared with some opinions, because God knows we are. Until then, for one thousand and one album complaints, I have been Tom. I'm Adam. I'm Bob. And I've been Rob. Mama Boosh.